Hello, this is Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. With a name like Mistress Carrie, we might be forgiven if we were a bit cautious asking her on ATB for a chat. But we knew what we were getting into. The Boston native Mistress Carrie is a badass. She was until recently a DJ for 22 years and the assistant program director of Boston rock station WAAF. It is difficult to list everything she does, so I'll plagiarize from her bio. She rides Harleys, runs the Boston Marathon, is an amateur marksman, military supporter, veterans advocate, guest lecturer, motivational speaker, baker, gardener, and likes to jump out of airplanes without a parachute. That last one may be fake news, but it wouldn't surprise me if it were true. On top of that, she's the first non-news journalist embedded with U.S. troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. While we knew some of these things in talking with her, it is obvious just how much she cares about the men and women in the military. Her passion and support for those serving continues with her current projects. After WAAF sadly signed off for good recently, she started the Mistress Carrie podcast and also created a following on Facebook with her Cocktails in the War Room live stream. We podcasters need to stick together. So once we heard about her latest projects, we knew we needed to have her on. And not only is she the first podcaster we've had on ATB, but she's also the first with purple hair. So here is our conversation with Mistress Carrie, recorded virtually in Boston, Massachusetts. I don't know if you know about what Ron does. Ron, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you talk about home base? Oh, I know home base yeah, very no, well. No, so it's really great to to finally meet you on many levels. So I wear I wear the above the basement hat with pride for four years as Thank Chuck you. started this, and I'm a physician at home base as well. So I know General Jack Hammond, and, and I CSM Davidson too. Tell him I said hi as well. Yeah, yeah, he's the man. Uh, it's a great group. They send their love during this crazy COVID times, and uh, would love to get you over there once we open up uh, open up the gates again. I know through through General Hammond and Michael uh, and Bill and others what you've uh, done in the past to support uh, home base, and we know that um, what you did overseas with I think that's is that where you met General Hammond? Yeah, I was I was embedded over there in Afghanistan with him. Yeah, were you kind of connected with the with the music and the entertainment? Uh, there or what were you doing there? No. So what happened when the war started, I kind of have to go back a little bit. What happened when the war started was that WAF had organized care package drives and there was just all kinds of stuff going on. And all the branches of the military started using the radio station and my show specifically to run recruitment ads. And so as the war got into 2003 and 2004, that's when everybody back home started hearing stories about there's no armor on the Humvees. These guys aren't trained for the kind of warfare they're dealing with. They don't have the right protective equipment. Uh, there's a lot of kids getting killed and are our soldiers baby killed? Like there was just a lot of news coming out of that part of the world. And so I started asking the question of what's real over there? Because A, those are my guys. Like I'm getting letters and care packages from these guys sending me vials of sand in their Tabasco bottles and just all of this stuff. And then we're sending stuff over there. But on top of it, the military is using me to recruit. And I really am starting to question whether I'm okay with you using me to recruit guys, not train them well enough, not give them the right equipment, and then send them into a meat grinder. Like, I have a problem with that. 
And so I started asking questions and I started really getting involved with, you know, training. I went to a weekend's condensed basic training with a bunch of recruits down on the Cape uh, and went through army basic training for the weekend, which was interesting just to kind of see what was going on. And I really started getting involved and I started asking a lot of questions. And so then I started getting letters from the guys saying, well, so-and-so's on a USO tour. How come they can come and see us, but you can't come and see us when you're actually, I mean, we sent over 2000 care packages with stuff that AAF listeners had donated and I was sending bumper stickers and then people would send me pictures back with my bumper stickers on their Humvees. And so it was this real exchange that I had with the guys and, and ladies, obviously, that were over there. So I started asking questions like, well, what would it take to go over there? And so the first thing we did was we reached out to the USO and the way that they kind of select the entertainment that goes over there is that their uh, criteria is that you be um, as known and as attractive to an army private from Alaska to a Marine officer from Maine and everywhere in between. So I was regionally known, but I wasn't nationally known. So if the USO brought me over there, there would be a lot of people that wouldn't even know who I was. And so I totally kind of understood that. Then there were some guys who will remain nameless that were going, that were having the conversations about smuggling me into Baghdad for the day. (laughs) They were going to put me on a plane And they were going to land in Baghdad so that I could meet the guys that were just right there. And then when the plane took off to come home again, they were going to bring me back home. Obviously, that didn't happen. So I had a friend that was a lieutenant colonel at CENTCOM at the time. And he and I had been exchanging care packages. And I was like, come on, man. Like, how can I get over there? These guys are, they're emailing me and sending me letters saying, come over here. How could I get over there? And so it was his idea. And he said, well, technically... You work for a broadcast media company. And so technically, you're a member of the press. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you the embedded reporter packet that CNN and Fox and ABC, the same packet that they all fill out, and I'm going to send it to you, and it's probably two inches thick, and you sign your entire life and most of your internal organs away. And he said, when you fill it out, use your real name, not Mistress Carrie, And write your parent company, not WAF. And then I'm going to submit it to the Pentagon and we'll see where it goes. So the whole time, now this is 2004, late 2004, early 2005. And I'm at work now going, guys, I just filled out an embedded reporter packet. I'm going to Iraq. So it came out to, for me to go with a producer, it would be about $30,000. Because the military didn't supply anything. They didn't supply the transportation. They didn't supply the body armor. The only things that the military supplies for embedded journalists is food, water, protection, and emergency medical uh, care if something happened to you. However, once you were cared for, they would then send you a bill for your medical care because you're not in the military. So there had to be a way for the military to be reimbursed. And they also wouldn't emergency evac you if something really bad happens. Like they, they would get you out of, you know, wherever the front line, wherever you were, but then you needed to have a way to either reimburse the military for evacuating you if no one else could get in there to get you, 
Or like if they were going to fly you to Germany, then there would have to be a civilian way that would then be compensated to get you home from Germany or something like that. So I had to do all this research. Then I had to find out how I was going to get it paid for. So now I'm the crazy purple-haired rock DJ going around to our advertisers asking, hey, if I get embedded with the troops in Iraq, would you sponsor it? Because I need this money. We need to figure out how we're even going to pull this off. So we agreed that if I was going to go, I was going to go over the fifth anniversary of 9-11 in 2006. I was blogging this whole process because I really wanted people to understand how hard it was to pull something like this off. It's not like you just go, hey, I'm going to Iraq and they send you. And the question became, if you die, who is going to pay for the transportation of your remains? And so I'm now aggravated because I'm like, okay, if I die over there and my company's just worried about how to get my body home. And so I'm blogging about it. And when I was a kid, I played softball. My softball coach was a mortician. He owned a funeral home. His daughter, who was the pitcher of our team, went to mortuary school, took over the family business and sent me an email with an attached letter on company letterhead that said my family would be honored to incur any and all cost of the transportation of your remains should anything happen to you, because she read my blog. And so obviously I went to Iraq in 2006 and was there for, I think, 11 days. And then as soon as I got home, the guys in Afghanistan were like, well, why didn't you come and see us? And within a week, we had picked the 10th anniversary of 9-11. That's when I was going to go. The guy that was my security guard in Baghdad had come home from that deployment, stayed in the army, got redeployed, and was in the unit that was general, one of General Hammond's units that I was trying to embed with again. So I had the same bodyguard in two different countries in two different years. And so I ended up in Afghanistan in September of 2011, and that's where I met CSM Davidson and um, General Hammond. I always really like to tell that story because I want people to understand how hard that process is and was. And to my knowledge, I was the first non-news journalist embedded with troops overseas. And as far as I know, it hasn't been done since. Were you the only one with purple hair? I was. Now everyone there has purple hair. My friends bought me a headscarf. Not so much when I was in Iraq because we controlled the country of Iraq when I was there. But when I landed in Afghanistan, we were working in conjunction with the Afghan government and military. And both of those times, just so people like, just so you understand how it works, I flew civilian. So when I went to Iraq, I flew from Boston, Logan to Heathrow and then Heathrow to Kuwait City to the international airport was picked up by the U.S. military in plain clothes And then driven around to the other side. Imagine if half of Logan Airport was a military base and the other half was a regular airport. Drove me around to the other side and that's where I got picked up by a Blackhawk and brought into Kuwait to um, acclimate to the time change and the temperature change. And then 18 hours later, I flew from Kuwait uh, to the border, got put on an, uh, an Air Force plane and flown into Baghdad with the Air Force. When I went to Afghanistan, I flew from Boston to Heathrow, Heathrow to Bahrain, and then Bahrain to Kabul International Airport on a civilian aircraft with a producer and no security and landed in Kabul in 2011 at the airport with no escort. 
I had to go through immigration, customs, all of that. And then I had to go outside into downtown Kabul, outside of the gates of the airport where my military escorts were waiting for me. So anybody that ever questions my balls, I'm like, bitch, please. I flew into into Kabul by myself. I'm okay. Uh, what a wow. full circle, the fact that you've used your, I mean, you, you've had your experience in radio and entertainment that you weren't, you weren't going for that a reason initially, you weren't entertaining people, but it was the fact that you had that, that connection to the military to say, wait a second, I'm partially responsible for these guys and girls that are signing up to go there. And uh, yeah, that experience. It was horrifying. Been wild. Yeah, yeah. It was horrifying that someone could get recruited because they liked my show. And then Uh, the idea that they weren't being trained well enough or weren't, you know, taken care of or they didn't have the right equipment or so the only thing I couldn't talk about when I was there was, was any kind of classified information. But otherwise if things were going well, and in a lot of cases they were, the guys were trained, they had the right equipment, they knew what, what they were doing. And in other cases, um, when it came to some of the private contracting companies that I saw getting rich yeah. off of the war, I, I was critical of that. So I was able to criticize. I, I just was told to tell the truth. That, and the guys told me, we just want to know you're going to tell the truth. And so I went over there with a double-sided mission. One, to carry the love and the messages of support from home to the guys overseas and like women but also then to be able to relay back those messages from our troops back home so that everyone at home could hear from them what they were really doing and know that it wasn't going to come through the filter of a biased journalism outlet, whether they be conservative-leaning or more liberal-leaning, that the audience just knew that I was going to shoot it straight no matter what it was. And so... It was to come over there and kind of take their mind off of things a little bit and to make sure that they knew that people at home supported them. But it was also to let people at home know like, okay, well, these are guys from our towns. Most of the people that I was embedded with were from Massachusetts or New England. And so it was like, these are our guys. Like these are, these are the people that came from our towns and this is what they're actually doing. And this is what you're not hearing on TV. It's a long time ago now. You know, it's, it's so interesting because with with me being a child of the 80s, I grew up in Boston too. So I was WBCN, WAAF, WCOZ, later on ZLX, FNX, all that kind of stuff. We and, were really uh, spoiled for a long time with a lot of great rock radio. I know. We really did. And, and it was like the renaissance of radio really too. I mean, that was like, I mean, we had Charles Lacordera on, um, was it almost a year ago? Jeez. Um yeah. From Hawaii, and, right? Is he still in Hawaii? No, he he was here. Um, he's visiting he was here in Boston oh, okay. uh, briefly. But anyways, my my point is that it's you know, it, I don't know if 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 kids or even people nowadays understand how important DJs were for us as kid. And as a kid, when I was listening to the radio all the time. Now I stopped listening to the radio after I moved out and I moved to New York. But whenever I was back in Boston, I'd always listen to the radio. But but DJs were important. There were people that were, their, their, their voices were in our ears. And I just find it so amazing that how important you were to the soldiers over there. I, I don't mean to belittle 
what you what you do but you know you understand what i'm, I'm saying? a rock it's dj like, oh, like i understand yeah. like that's my job i'm a rock dj what the hell am but, i doing in baghdad but it's important yeah. that's important to be a rock dj because you are part of their their everyday lives when they were here that you would he they would hear your voice in their trucks when they were you know when they were driving to work or whatever sometimes so it's more comforting than family members yeah because you played the music that they loved and, and it's not um, even so just that really like i think radio still is so important and it breaks my heart to see what's happened to it as a medium and I say it because unlike television, unlike the internet, unlike all of those things, my name came from the listeners because when I was doing nights at AAF, they would call and say, I listen to you every night. You're in my work truck with me or whatever. You're the other woman in my life. It's like I'm having an affair. You're my mistress and my wife is cool with it. There are people that come up to me that listen to me for 20 years and they know me better than they know their own family members. And that connection doesn't come through a television. It doesn't come through a movie screen. And it doesn't come through the internet. Now, granted, I don't know them as well going the other way. But there is an exchange that no matter what, no matter the good news or the bad news, and I've been behind the microphone for both, whether it be 9-11 or the marathon bombings or the wars or a, a blizzard, the DJ is in that position to either console and comfort directly to the person listening to them, or they're able to take that listener to a place that they couldn't normally go. So if I'm backstage with Dave Grohl in the Red Sox locker room at Fenway Park before the Foo Fighters play, I'm like, hey, listen, Dave, sit down and talk to me. And he's going to talk to me. But the listeners, he's really talking to them. And I'm just the conduit for it. I am so sad, especially with what's happening with the coronavirus, where we're all in such desperate need of connection, more so now than ever. And that radio has that ability. And it's just not being utilized the way that I know it can be, because I've done it for so long and I have such an amazing connection with the people that have listened to me over the years. And it's like, I feel like the way radio is downsizing and becoming more corporate, that it's squandering that relationship. AAF was way ahead of its time with a lot of things. And we had a television show back in the mid and late nineties and early two thousands called Real Rock TV. And Opie and Anthony hosted the first, I don't know, like 80 episodes or something. And then when they got fired, and they changed all of the day parts around and I started becoming the night jock, I became really good friends with the producer, Ian Barrett, immediately. I mean, I had known him before because I was working on the promotions team, but I was super interested in getting involved with the television show. And I hosted 263 episodes of that television show. And I've had purple hair since I was 18 years old. So I never really got to be that traditional anonymous voice behind the microphone because from the jump, I was the purple haired, crazy DJ that I see on TV doing all of this stuff every weekend. And then once the internet became something that where we had YouTube channels and Facebook and MySpace and Twitter and Instagram and we had, a, you know, video portal on our website and photo galleries and 
more and more people had camera phones. And so we went from people coming up wanting us to autograph stuff for them to just wanting to take selfies. And so you couldn't just be that kind of faceless, booming voice behind the scenes anymore. You had to become this all-encompassing media personality. I, I got in there, you know, there are some guys that I worked with that they were like, oh, I'm getting out before anybody sees what I look like, you know? <laughs> so I always had that kind of pressure. And because I was the only girl, too, it was like, you know, uh, I felt a little bit of pressure to kind of make sure I was the uh, one that looked and smelled good, too, you know? You've got some pretty good CV. You you jump out of airplanes. You've uh, won a couple... Uh, civilian awards for your work overseas and you're badass. Yeah, I'm very quick to tell people, I'll describe my experience this way. I look at myself like a translator. I'm not necessarily fluent when it comes to the military, but I can get by. I never in a million years would consider myself at the level of someone that actually enlisted or commissioned and, and is wearing a uniform and serving. Course, but yes. my experiences have shown me more than the average civilian. And if you've got 3% of the population that's either in the military or has been previously, and the other 97% of us that are civilians that really don't know a lot, unless you've got a military member or a veteran in their family, there's a huge chasm. And being at war for almost 20 years, the more we bridge that gap between the civilian world and the military world, the better it is for all of us. And so I look at myself like part of that bridge that I can explain to a civilian what some of this stuff means. And when I talk to someone or interview someone that has served and they talk about what Kabul smelled like or they talk about you know, how hot it is in Iraq. I have that experience that I can ask them questions that a regular civilian who's never seen it for themselves can ask them. The last episode of my podcast was like that. You know, I, I interviewed a first sergeant retired from the army that was a sergeant first class on Cop Keating, which is an incredibly famous battle in Afghanistan. It happened on October 3rd of 2009. And they teach this battle at West Point now because it was 53 American soldiers in the low ground in a valley on a base that should never have been there in the first place, surrounded by up to 400 Taliban fighters that had the high ground on all sides. And the battle raged for 12 hours and eight Americans were killed. This unit is still to this date the most highly decorated unit of the Afghanistan war. So out of 53 they gave out 37 Army Commendation Medals. They gave out uh, 27 Purple Hearts. They gave out 21 Broaden Stars, 18 of them with a V device, nine Silver Stars, two Distinguished Service Medals, and two Medals of Honor to two living recipients in the same unit in the same battle, and that hasn't been done in over 50 years. And that's just 53 guys. And so and where, is, where is he from? The guy that you talk with? He was originally from Virginia. He lives in Texas now. His name is okay. um, First Sergeant Jonathan Hill, retired. And he is portrayed in this film, The Outpost, which is a movie that is based on the book of the same name by Jake Tapper, the reporter from CNN. Right. It and just came out, right? It just came, the movie just came out on Friday. 
uh, Scott Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's son is in it, and Orlando Bloom is in it. And it's all about Cop Keating, which is the base where this battle happened. And the director, Rod Lurie, is a West Point graduate, so he knows how to tell that kind of a story. The podcast episode isn't a shot-by-shot recollection of the battle for him. My goal was I wanted somebody to listen to the podcast and when they watched the movie and saw him being portrayed, that they felt like that, I know that guy. Because now it's a personal connection that those are real people that lived through something. This really happened. And, and I'm giving you access to go back to me being able to take the audience to places they might not normally go. I'm, I'm letting you hear from a guy that was really there. And, and he can tell you what it was really like. But it also tells you how he got there because it talks about his life before that day. And then it talks about his life after that day and how he's struggled and recovered from that and what his life is like now, which the movie's not going to show you. The book was a number one New York Times bestseller. From what I was told by John in the interview, Jake Tapper did an unbelievable job of researching his book. That he literally talked to everyone he could. He read all the documents. He read everything. And so I believe that John was interviewed by Jake Tapper for his book, and then the movie is based on the book. But I, I wanted to ask you about podcasting, though, because, you know, you, you had uh, retired Army uh, Jonathan Hill recently, but, and you, you've obviously uh, uh, done so much uh, great work in radio, as, as you talked about. When you say that you're, there's, there's a, it's a dying art right now and that it's sad, that, that's true. Uh, we don't have that in our in our houses, in our cars, in our headphones like we used to. That day to day DJ relationship. But how how has podcasting been for you? Is, is have you thought about it as the dark side, or have you thought about it like uh, is it going to take get my my radio uh, broadcasting bug, or is it very different? Well, I I had a podcast and have been involved with podcasting while I was on the radio. So everything that I did for the radio would be up as a podcast. So say I interviewed Dave Grohl at Fenway and I talked to him for 20 minutes, I would only air three or four minutes of the interview at a time, but the whole thing would be up as a podcast on the website. So that, uh, you know, I would say, well, if you missed the first part or, you know, I talked to him about this as well. And if you want to hear that part, you can go to the website. Then yeah, I, like NPR now, you go on, you got all these interviews. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But then I was but also- is this the first time you're, you actually have like, your own podcast, right? No. So so then I was encouraged to have a long-form talk podcast because I had a music show. And, you know, when you're playing 10 or 12 songs in an hour and, you know, 13 minutes of commercials, there's not a lot of room left to get into these long, in-depth conversations. So I had a podcast called Mistress Carrie's Side Piece. And I had complete creative control over it, and I could talk about whatever I wanted. I could I could have artists come on. Um, I could talk about the charity work and military stuff. And I did a lot of that. I think I did 40 something episodes. And then when the merger happened with CBS and Entercom, my parent company, um, we actually ironically moved WAF studios into the old CBS building, which was the old building where BCN used to be. We took over the ZLX studio when ZLX got sold off in the merger to iHeart. And when we did all of that shuffling around, 
we lost the podcast studio that we had in our old building on Guest Street. And so I didn't have a space to be able to do it. And so it kind of got put on the shelf for like a year or so. Last summer, when we got our new program director in place and all of that, he was like, you know, once we get everything settled and we rebrand WAF and we kind of relaunch everything, we're going to have a space for you to be able to go and do that podcast. And I really want you to make that a priority and to do it again. Because it gave me just another outlet It's something that I had always done. It's something that people had always encouraged me to do more of. It's just there wasn't a lot of opportunity or space or, you know, I was the assistant program director at WAF when the station went off the air and I had been the music director for 14 years or something like that. So I had a whole other set of responsibility on top of just being on the air for five hours every day. You know, I had job interviews the week after AAF signed off the air and some job interviews that went really well about getting back into traditional radio. And then the coronavirus happened. And I was like, you know, I don't know if these jobs are going to be there when things lighten up from the virus. And I can't just sit around and wait. That's not my style. So I said, you know what? I'm going to act as though there's no other future for me. And I'm going to invest in myself and I'm really going to see what I'm capable of. And so I spent a ton of money and I started my own company and I built my own studio and I got a lawyer and I got a graphic designer to come up with new logos and I had to get insurance and I had to get bank accounts and like all of the stuff that I never in a million years thought I would ever have to deal with. For the longest time, when I started Cocktails in the War Room on Facebook, I was just talking into my cell phone. And then the big technical upgrade was that I got a, uh, a tripod that had a light on it so that I could use two hands because I'm Italian. So I like to talk with my hands. And now I could talk with two hands and put my phone on the tripod. And I did that for 81 nights in a row during the height of the lockdown. It started, the first show was March 14th. And so now Cocktails in the War Room is every Tuesday night at 830 it's live and interactive. It, it, people can comment and I can bring guests on and we can go live. And then my new podcast episodes go live at midnight. So I'm able to announce in the war room who's on the podcast that week. So this Tuesday, tomorrow night, we would then talk about the Jonathan Hill episode of the podcast and talk about if people had seen the movie and what they thought about it. And then I would announce who's going to be on next week's episode and talk about that and whatever else is going on in the news that week. Good idea. It it happened completely by accident. I would like to take credit and say that I'm a a brilliant media person, but it came out of the fact that I was locked in my house by myself and I had nothing to do and I wasn't an essential employee. So I said, I'm just going to go live on Facebook and see who signs on. That first night, 11,000 people watched. And now the war room averages somewhere between like three and 5,000 people a week, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, it's your own PR for yourself and for the, for the shows. I mean, Chuck actually uh, started the together at home music series during the COVID during the pandemic, which was like every week, every weekend we had uh, live music musicians from their bedrooms, basically everywhere. It's pretty awesome. And, but I like the idea of the talk element too, because you can review your own show and say, you, you could even, you could even say things like, uh, yeah, 
can you believe that came up and we talked about this or blah, 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 blah. And you can like, you know, and anybody can comment on it that may have listened. Yeah. And it, and because I'm doing the show in my house, my dog is there. And so my dog, I have a pug, a black pug named Wednesday who has like 800 people following her Instagram page now because she's become famous because she always comes into cocktails in the war room. And so now when you go in the war room with me, I set up a camera called the pug cam. So when she comes in and jumps up on the couch, I turn on the pug cam so that people can watch the dog and she gets more mail than I do. People send her treats and collars and tags. And and so every week we talk about whatever's going on in the news or what's going on locally, how the tours are getting rescheduled. And then we talk about last week's podcast episode. We got each other through the virus. And so this, I mean, the community of the war room, like there's even like groups, private groups on Facebook now of people that have become friends because of the war room and now they're friends on Facebook and they're in these support rooms together and then they talk about cocktails in the war room after the cocktails in the war room episodes over so it's like they're talking about me talking about the podcast and it's creating this whole thing that I never in a million years would have thought that would have happened yeah you know it's it's funny because AAF went out of business uh, right before COVID hit, right? we triggered the apocalypse going off right. the air. And That's what now it's apocalypse. Now it's a now it's a religious music, right? Isn't it? A, a it's Christian, a Christian rock. Yeah, it's Christian rock. Yeah. yeah. And now you're not even sure like what is going to be the new normal. And I, I I've been talking about the new normal for a while now. And the more I talk about it, the more I have no clue what it is going to be. Nobody does. And and I tell people all the time, like like mine will never go back to what it was because I was unemployed in social distancing before it was cool. And so for me, everything that happened since February 21st, which was AAF's last night on the air, everything then, this is my new normal. I, I don't know what life is going to be like after COVID because it didn't look right before COVID hit. Everything changed for me. So, so I just had to go, okay, I'm going to take my own destiny in my own hands. Well, it's an opportunity. Yeah, I have to look at it that way. Otherwise, I won't get out of bed. That's one of the things that we talked about. And, it, you know, all of the videos for all of the Cocktails in the War Room episode, they're all up on my Facebook page. Since it became a weekly thing, they are now also up on my new YouTube channel. But the original 81 episodes that are 81 nights in a row that started on March 14th, they're all up there. And there are some of them where I am hysterically crying because... Like, I remember one night when they came out and said the estimates, the conservative estimates for casualties from the virus were 100,000 Americans. And I remember that hitting me so hard that that was like Gillette Stadium and the Boston Garden and the Orpheum and the House of Blues, like fill them all at the same time and then kill everybody in them. And that's where my brain went, like, what is that equivalent? And I was on the Internet and I was just bawling. And people would be commenting, like, my father-in-law is on a ventilator right now. And there would be nights where it would just be so overwhelming. And the support from people commenting going, hey, you know what? You're saying everything we're feeling. It's nice to know we're not crazy. That connection, which is what radio should be doing right now. That's what, what you did with the troops. And you're back to what you did, what, what your sort of your DNA is. I think what's crazy, too, is down south, and across the West now, 
that's a whole other topic, but they're going through what we did a couple months ago. They're going through it with the benefit of access to adequate testing, and they're going through it with access to adequate PPE, which we did not have access to. But yeah, they're going through this same crisis now where they're running out of room in the hospitals and they're they're rolling back all of the things they said about this is America and let's go into the bars and do all this stuff. And now they're like, oh shit, wait a it's minute. It's weird what? to dial it back. Like Boston and New York, and we never did that. We just kind of cautiously moved forward. But I mean, everybody in Texas and, and California and Georgia they opened the gates and said, let's all go back to work and let's all have fun. And then they had to dial it back. People don't know what to believe now. Like there are actually people, and I've talked about this on my podcast with Corey Taylor from Slipknot and Stone Sour, Tommy Vex from Bad Wolves, the guys from Shinedown. There are people in chat rooms on the internet in their parents' basement that think they know more about this virus than Dr. Anthony Fauci. Because they read something on Facebook or they heard the president say something that had no basis in science whatsoever. And it's like every president since Reagan, regardless of party, has had Anthony Fauci there to advise them because he is the expert. He is the guy. I, I joke all the time. We were joking in the war room that we needed to that needed to become. Um, like a phrase in our vernacular, like, dude, that is so Fauci. You know, it needed to become something that's awesome and badass and cool because he deserves that. He okay. did. He did have Brad Pitt play him on Saturday Night Live. Really? Yeah, he did. It. He was really funny in it. It was really good. Well, you know where that came from, right? That someone asked in an interview, if Dr. Fauci were going to be portrayed in a movie, who should play him? And he jokingly said Brad Pitt. So then Saturday Night Live on that first live episode got Brad Pitt to play Fauci and he did the voice pretty good. They put the wig on him and it was hilarious. I, You know, I've never been one of those people that's like, if so-and-so gets elected, I'm going to Canada. Mrs. Carey, we wanted yeah. to talk to you about so many things. And um, I didn't want to talk about how one foot you have is bigger than the other. I heard that. Yeah. I have two different size feet. Yeah. It's such What's a pain that, in the one ass. One size? No? no, they're both different sizes. Yeah. So. No. I know, but yeah, is I have it two different size feet. of one size or two sizes? No, four sizes. Four sizes? A 10 and one that's wow. a six. Really? Now, do you understand my question, Chuck? Yeah. Well, it wasn't well put, so I had to, I had to ask Well, I mean, a lot of people, it's a difference of one size, a six and a seven. Yeah, there's a lot of people that have, like, right around a half a size. Usually, it's your dominant size. So, like, you know, if you're right-handed, your right hand is a little bit bigger. Usually, your right bicep is a little bit yeah, bigger. Right. Yeah. Um, usually, with women, if they're right-handed, their right breast is a little bit bigger because they use that arm more, so it builds that muscle up more. So, it's that's common. What's not common, and the reason why I have it, is when I was a kid, I had what they call a tethered spinal cord. Yeah, which is something that now they can test for in utero and they can correct it either when the baby is still in the womb or shortly thereafter. But, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons. Like, for me, it was caused by the tethered spinal cord. And my smaller side, the leg was an inch shorter than the bigger side. And so I had surgery when I was 12. They tried to undo some of the nerve damage in the smaller foot. And so they stapled the growth plates in my good leg closed so that the 
the smaller leg, now that the spinal cord was untethered, would be able to catch up. So I'm supposed to be taller. My grandmother was six feet tall. They thought I was going to be around 5'10", and I'm only 5'7", so my career as a supermodel was dead before it even began. But So my legs are the same length now. Well, that's good, because that can cause a lot of problems, too. Which is why me running the marathon for the home base program was such a crazy thing. And I had all of my surgeries, the surgeries that saved my life happened at Mass General, which is another tie that I have to the hospital. So not only was that a sentimental thing to do it with home base, because I've worked with home base for years and with General Hammond and CSM Davidson, but also that I believe in the hospital because I wouldn't be here. They told me when they found the tethered spinal cord that I would be in a wheelchair by the time I was 18 and I would be dead by the time I was 30 unless they did the surgery right then. Well, you know, the most important question is what the hell you do with all those other, the extra shoes? Dude, let me tell you. So first of all, people say, well, just buy the ones you want and just bring them up to the register. And I'm like, do you ever buy a pair of shoes? They check. And it's because people like me used to do that shit. So then I have to buy either two pairs or I was told by somebody that works there, and this is true, Because Nordstrom started as a shoe store over 100 years ago, that if your feet are more than two sizes different, they only require you to buy the shoes you need, and they don't make you buy both pairs. You ride bikes, right? You ride motorcycles. I do. I may have to remove this from the episode, but I'm thinking about buying a bike, and I'm looking at a um, a Royal Enfield. You ever heard of those? No. It It is a British British bike, bike. and it's such an old school. I, I sat in it the other day. And it was so nice. I don't know how to, I don't know how to ride one. I got to take, I got to, well, let me give you some advice. First of all, take the class. I took the class and it's amazing. And the second thing is buy all of the protective equipment. Well, and wear your friggin' helmet because I crashed in 2015 and had to have my face reconstructed, but I was wearing a, a, a legal helmet, but it was open face. And I crashed on route two on the Friday of Labor Day weekend. And I broke this whole part of my face and had to have two facial reconstruction surgeries at Mass Eye and Ear to put it back together. Had I not been wearing the gear that I had, I wouldn't have been in the condition I was. I had a really good jacket that had the armor on the inside of the leather. I had gloves on. I had riding boots and jeans. And I had shatterproof goggles. And I had a real helmet. It was just open-faced. But I tell people, like, here you go. Here's another example. We're talking about the connection with the audience, right? So I was out of work for a while because I had to have all the surgeries and stuff. And I had been posting pictures, really ugly pictures. If you, if you go on my Facebook page, there's a photo album called Motorcycles. And if you go in there, there's all kinds of pictures of my bike before the accident and all this stuff. It was an album for years. And then you see pictures of what happened to my bike. There's pictures of my face from the accident, all of that kind of stuff. And I put all these pictures up and I was like, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. If you don't want to wear a helmet when you go to New Hampshire, don't wear a helmet. All I can tell you is that had I not been wearing a helmet... I would have died. That's what the paramedics told me. I wear them, always wore them, and always will wear them. And I think helmets rock. I think they're cool. And so I talked about that on the radio. But then like a month or two after I had my last operation, that summer, I got a, an email from a guy who rides with his wife. She rides on the back. She heard me talking about it. She saw my pictures. She nagged her husband and said, we need to get real helmets. And they went out and bought real helmets. And a week later, they crashed. And the paramedics told them that the helmet saved their lives. 
it was one of those things where I was like, you know what? If all of that that I did to have those people hear me, then it was all worth it. That's what radio, that's what it had the power to do and still does have the power to do. I think podcasting is different in that I'm not coming into it as a person nobody knew before. Like, I'm not just starting a hobby podcast that gets more and more popular. Like, I'm coming at it with the pressure of meeting the standard and the high bar that I already set for myself. So I'm hoping, and and so far it's been amazing, that that connection with the audience is still there. That they're listening to the podcast, they're coming into the war room. Once we're all able to kind of move freely about the cabin again and concerts start happening and I'm going to be backstage talking to their favorite bands again and I'll be out at shows and all the things that I did at WAF, I'm going to be able to do all of that stuff again. But in the meantime, being able to have the conversations that I'm having with the people that I'm talking to and be able to still get my voice out there um, and the fact that it's all on me. Who do you have on next uh, for your next episode? Um, so the next episode is uh, Daryl McDaniels oh, from Run DMC. We just talked to Jeff Edgers. Did you know that? Oh, that's Je- great. You know, no. Jeff, Jeff Edgers, he's, the, he's Washington Post arts reporter, and he wrote the um, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith book. Yeah, so he wrote about it, how it's the it's it's really what brought hip-hop into the mainstream. And it and it's spearheaded. We talk about it in the podcast that it's uh, that it started for for better or worse a whole other genre. Like D was talking about bands like Rage Against the Machine and Kid Rock and Corn and Limp Bizkit and all those bands. Run DMC specifically because of how rock centric they were from the beginning, even before working with Aerosmith, really fused that. And he is a fascinating guy. Yeah, this is Carrie. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you guys for hanging out with me and asking me. We would like to thank Mistress Carrie for talking with us. You can see what she does on Facebook with her handle Mistress Carrie W A A F, and also listen to her podcast wherever fine podcasts are offered. And as always, you can go to AboveTheBasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thank you for listening. Tell your friends, wear a mask, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.